My name is Nick. It is my privilege uh, to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, I, uh, yeah, I want to pray and then we can get going. Father, I want to thank you um, for the fact that you have rescued us. And I want to thank you that, um, that you don't just allow us to kind of sit on the beach and enjoy our rescue. Uh, but you have given us the privilege of joining you as you restore all things to yourself. Whether it's in the context of families or adoption or the brokenness in our society, whether it's going out and declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness, I want to thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to live in such an exciting space where your spirit has filled us to be able to be heralds of the good news. Um, and I want to thank you uh, that every time we submit ourselves to your word, uh, there is not only the possibility, but the probability of your spirit changing something in our souls uh, so that we can understand you more deeply um, and so that we can be more effective in the mission that you've given us. So, Father, we posture ourselves humbly under your word this morning, and we pray, Spirit of God, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our penultimate um, installment of uh, Philippians. That means our second to last. Um, we will start our Advent series. That's what penultimate means. I know. Thank you. Right. Um, and, uh, and 1st of December, we'll be starting our Advent series called Dawn. I'm excited about that. I also know that it is a lotion. So I was a little worried about kind of the confusion. Dawn soap, lotion, whatever. Clearly, I don't use either of those. Anyway, I know. It's like, right, start bailing the water out. Best way to do that is to read out of God's Word, which I'm going to do. And I'm going to read Philippians 2, um, Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9 out of the New King James Version. Um, I implore Euodia and I implore Synthache to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. As some of you have already noticed this morning, I tend to give people conversation whiplash, right? And so we'll be in a conversation, and all of a sudden, I will talk about something completely unrelated. And people will think, what, what just happened? They get conversation whiplash. But in my mind, there is a connection. There is this very thin, fragile strain of a connection that when you were talking about milk, I started thinking about missing children. Why? 
because um, on milk cartons way back when, you know, they were, they were missing children. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we sometimes think, man, I've, I've just got kind of conversation whiplash. All of a sudden, Paul is talking about our citizenship being in heaven, that we will be transformed and our lowly bodies will be transformed into these glorious bodies, that Jesus will subject all things to himself and he's telling us that we will, he's telling us we will receive our joy and crown and we will stand firm in the Lord. And then he says, I implore you, dear, and I implore Synthaki to be of the same mind. And you're like, oh, he's onto something else. But he's not. He's not onto something else. And part of the challenge when we've read the scripture, and as we've read the entire book of Philippians over this last month, we've seen phrases like, be of the same mind, be like-minded, in lowliness of mind, consider others better than yourselves. This mind which was in Christ should also be in you. Set your mind on things above. If you are mature, you have the same mind. There are those that have set their minds on earthly things. And so we read even in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality, God, equality with God a thing to be grasped. Many of us have read this text before, and it's, uh, it's, it's known as the don't worry, be happy text. You know? Those of you that are old enough may remember that song, don't worry, be happy. You know? I'm not going to sing it. Because then you will worry and you won't be happy, okay? <laughs> Part of the problem with this portion of Scripture is that we've done violence to this text in the past as we've taken it out of context. And we've said, rejoice always. Be anxious for nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and God shall supply all my needs. And, and, and Philippians 4 are four of the key things that we've taken out of context, and so we look at the beginning of this and we say, how does relational disunity fit into everything that Paul is talking about in, in this context? But it fits in incredibly well. We often don't think that relational disunity affects anyone other than the people that are engaged in this relational disunity. Um, but, but it affects everyone in the household. If there's relational disunity in your family, if there's relational disunity among your co-workers, if there's relational disunity among your roommates, you guys know that it's not this tight, nice, little boundaried situation between two people. It affects the environment. I mean, we, we have a dog, a little puppy, and even the dog knows. He, he's not little, he's getting bigger now. It's funny, though, because obviously our girls can sense tension between Car and I, but even the dog is beginning to sense tension now between... He walked in one day, and Car and I were like, we had just been praying for each other. And, <laughs> and the poor dog walks in, and he looks like this, and he goes... And he walks out, you know? It's like... Even the dog didn't want to be around, you know? Can you imagine listening to this letter... Now, this is a letter that is publicly read out in the context of a church. And so this is what he's saying. Betsy, Hannah, you have to agree with one another. Imagine how embarrassing that must have been for Yodi and Syncathy. In, in the context of the whole church, he's saying to them, and Neil, you've got to help them, man. You've got to help them come to the same, the same mind. How exposing must that have been? The whole Philippian church knows that these two women have had a disagreement. But I think that he's not singling them out just to show that they're the bad people. He's singling them out to remind the congregation that they have been fellow workers, 
that they have contended with him for the gospel. And that there's a sense in which they are as much part of this community and have invested into this community as much as Clement has and as much as the leader of the Philippian church, whom Paul calls the true companion, has. He's not doing this to embarrass. He's doing this to show the entire community that when two people are in disagreement, it affects the entire community. Now, what are they in disagreement about? Wouldn't we like to know that, right? Whenever two people are like, well, what are they fighting about? Now, let me say this. To suggest that these are just two emotional and reasonable women that have had some kind of personal argument where Paul needs to call them out and embarrass them in front of the community is not true. It's not consistent with Paul, and it doesn't work with the context. More than likely, this goes back to Philippians 3, verse 15, where Paul is telling the entire congregation, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things, and if you disagree on some point, God will make that clear to you, or God will reveal that to you. What was he talking about? He was talking about how do Jewish Christians actually engage with Gentile Christians in the context of their faith? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they not need to be circumcised? What do we do with Caesar worship? Who is Lord? And I would contend to say that this is not just a simple petty argument that Paul is pointing out these two women that all of you need to avoid because they are so bad. No, but these are two women that have labored in the gospel, that have been um, active in the foundations of the church, just like Lydia was active in the foundation of the Philippian church and saying, guys, you've got to come to a place of faith about the important things of the gospel and how living in line with the gospel works. Interpersonal conflict is personal. You're like, duh, right? You ever been in a conversation and someone says, don't take that personally? Or in the States, don't take that personal. And I'm like, how else would you like me to take that? It's intensely personal. You're talking about my motives. You're talking about my behavior. It's like, I would like to not take it personally, but you've just made it personal. And so there is a problem when it comes to interpersonal uh, conflict where it is personal. Let's not pretend it isn't. It is. Anytime you have to meet with someone and you're talking about interpersonal relationships or conflict, there is going to be something personal there. But we have to recognize it but not be led by that. We can't allow our emotions to lead this. And that's what Paul is going to help us with in the context of the Scripture. Paul is not a consultant, he's not an organizational superior, he's a father and a brother and a fellow worker who is personally affected by the fact that these two women are disagreeing. We see this throughout all of Paul's letters to the churches. There isn't the sense in which he's standing there and he's saying, our bylaws state this, therefore just get in line. He's saying, guys, I know both of you. I know that you love Jesus. I know that you sacrificed for him. And you guys are disagreeing, and I want you to find the same mind as Jesus. I want you to think of each other better than yourselves. I want you to humble yourselves. I want you to do all of these things so that we can be an example as a colony of heaven on earth in terms of how we deal with our interpersonal problems. Implore is not an organizational word. Implore is an emotional word. I, I implore you. To, to find you. He says it twice, I implore Yodia and I implore Synthaki. And I, I remember when we were working, I was working with a church, and this church was going through some real difficulties. Um, and, and the eldership and the leadership were not finding each other. 
And, and as, a, as a network, we don't have any legal authority in the churches in which we work with. Uh, there's a sense in which we partner together so that we can achieve what it is that God has called us to achieve in Southern California. And I remember Alan and I just sending a letter and literally saying, brothers, we implore you. This is the strongest way that we can say, as we implore you, please do not do this. He does not take sides. He does not make a judgment. Now, he's not afraid to do either of those things. If you've read any of Paul's writings, you know that he has no problem setting a very clear line in the sand. He has no problem calling out. In, in the Ephesian letter, he says, watch out for Hymenius. He did me much harm. He calls other people workers of Satan. He has no problem in actually saying, look, this person is wrong here, but he doesn't do it in this case. He doesn't make a judgment. He's not afraid to. He urges the leader of the Philippian church to help these women come to agreement in the implementation of the previous three chapters. Basically, Paul is reminding us, remember, we're saying, remember to forget. He's reminding us that there's no value in orthodoxy. There's no value in holding to his teaching. There's no value in a zealous defense and confirmation of the gospel. There's no value in any of that unless we also get rid of rivalry, of empty, empty conceit, and we have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Disharmony in the church is often a product of internal, personal turmoil that spills out into the corporate space. If your heart is not at peace, it is generally quite difficult for you to be at peace with other people. Now, one would say that that should be obvious, but it's not obvious to us because some of the time we look at the other person that's causing us grief and we say, what is the matter with that person? And yet the question we should be asking is, God, what is the state of my heart? What is the state of my soul? Why is this happening? Because by and large, in a context like this community, I would be very surprised if someone is setting out to actively make you upset, to actively just frustrate you or make you angry. That's why we've got to ask God, what is happening? This is not just in the context of church. I've said, I've said this before, as, you know, in, in the context of the place in which you work, in the context of your family, in, in the context of deep friendships, or even in, in roommate um, situations, there are things that we can learn that the Bible teaches us about re relational um, unity. Relational disunity in the church, though, it's, yeah, it's a different form. The, this is way different to the guy cutting you off in traffic. The guy who cuts you off in traffic, and you may let some kind of expletive go, or you might show him which is your longest finger, or you might do something <laughs> like that. But unless there is something wrong with you, you should have forgotten it by the time you got home. You should not be losing sleep about it. There should not be the sense in which this is in the forefront of your mind. The problem with relational disunity in the church is we allow it to simmer. We allow it to sit there. You know what happens when, you, when, when, uh, when the recipe says allow something to simmer? You know what happens is you put it on a low heat for a long time so that the flavors can come out, so that it becomes more intense. That's, that's what simmering in, in cooking does, right? Right? Okay, good. Good. It'd be really bad if it didn't, but you know... And so what we do with relational conflict in the, in, in the church is we don't turn that up because we know, oh, you'll be a bad person if you, like, confront this issue. That's like turning it up to heat. No, but what we'll do is we'll allow this to simmer. And so what happens when, when this simmers 
is we become quick to speak and quick to anger. All the things the Bible tells us not to do. And, and this, is, this is difficult when there's a valid reason for that conflict. Someone has hurt you. Someone has said something. Someone has done something. Someone has acted in a way that has actually hurt you. So I'm not saying that this is all in your mind. I'm saying what do we do when we are hurt? We allow this to simmer. You begin to question people's motives. You begin to imagine conversations that they are having with someone else about you. You begin to live in a state where you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Your prayers for them are hindered. You ever try to pray for someone that you really PO'd with? It's very difficult. That's why God says, pray for your enemies. Why? Because that's like a rebound. You're like, well, I can't. But He's like, right here. There's a problem right here. And you know what? If we allow anger to simmer, we just live in a place of constant insecurity and anxiety. And that's what happens. It's like this low-grade simmering anxiety. And Paul doesn't want us to live like that. Neither does Jesus. So how do I know if I'm living in a state of relational health? We look at this, and, and the first thing is our ability to rejoice and absorb. I know I'm living in a state of relational health if I have the ability to rejoice and to absorb. Again, this looks like a change in subject where Paul is talking about Yodia and help these women to come together. And, and these, their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, rejoice in the Lord always. And you're like, what? What just happened? No, it's, it's within the same context. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, reasonableness, forbearance be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This is a present continuous word. This is similar to the word that Paul uses where he says, be being filled with the Spirit, where he, he tells the Galatian church, be being filled with the Spirit. In, in, in this context, he is saying, rejoice in the Lord always and keep rejoicing. Rejoice and keep rejoicing. We need that in order to be able to be gentle. We need forbearance because there are people in our lives that are just heavy. And we need the ability to actually bear them. There, we need to be reasonable because there are people in our lives that are unreasonable. And we need to be gentle because there are people in our lives that are hard and aggressive. And this is something that not everyone is going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right now. People will irritate you. People will frustrate you. People will hurt you. People will abuse you. That will happen. You cannot go through this life with none of that happening. And I'll tell you in the context of a covenant community, that will happen too. The difference will be is that that will be 90% of the time unintentional. 90% of the time, those things that happen are not going to be because someone intends to do those things. But because of the way in which we live in community, those things will happen. And so one of the things that we need to do is we need the ability to absorb these things through the rejoicing. Now, those of you that have driven cars, most of you, there's a mechanical lesson for you. Your car has a steering wheel and your car has shock absorbers. And most of the time what we try and do is we try and steer away. You like that? We try and steer away. This is quite heavy. I'm getting a core workout here. We try and use, we try and use the steering wheel to steer away from conflict. It's like, oh, I know where this is going. We, kind of, we, we steer away from conflict. And we don't pay much attention to our shock absorbers. And the shock absorbers that God has given in our soul is actually to deal 
with those bumps. It's like, boom, okay, we keep going. Here we go. Because I don't want to go all the way around this. I want to go through it, and I want to be able to rejoice, and I want to be able to know that my soul is in a good place. Shock absorbers are designed to help us to deal with bumps. And what I'm talking about shock absorbers is not, uh, it, it's not things that need to be forgiven. It's areas where you just need to bear with one another. And I've spoken about this many times, and I think that in the context of interpersonal conflict is one of the, if we can get this right, a lot of our issues will go away. God, is this something that I need to forgive, or is this something like I can just bear with that? You know? Like I don't need to forgive Stephanie for getting up, causing a big ruckus as she leaves, knocking over a metal hydro flask, Those are things that we bear with. It happened. Shouldn't mean anything by it. But you know what the problem is? Is, is, when, is when our souls are not in a place of peace, I'm like, why did she get up? She must not like what I have to say. She must have been offended by something that I, that I said. And she got up and kicked that over on purpose just to show that. So when I say it like that, you guys are like, that's ridiculous. But slow down. And think about when you've done that. And think about this. Is your soul in a good state when you think like that? Is your relationship with Jesus something that is, that is just joyous and gives you kind of fresh breath? And you're like, yes, I'm enjoying my devotional time with Jesus. I'm, I'm enjoying my times of prayer and meditation and Bible reading. And we're in a good place. I'm, I hear him. He hears me. It's much easier to bear with people in those contexts when we're in a good place. Happiness depends on what happens. But joy is a much, much deeper thing where he tells us, what is, the, what is the key here? In the Lord is at hand. That doesn't mean the Lord is coming. That means the Lord is at hand. It means he is there to help you with this. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. God, I can't do this. I know the Lord is at hand. He is able to help you do that. Don't try work up feelings on your own. Don't fake it, but rather face the truth that God, right now, I need you. Are you at hand? Paul says, insist on rejoicing. And most of us have this love-hate relationship with this phrase, I choose joy. You know, it, it seems hackneyed and unintelligent and potentially even harmful um, in situations like that. But, but when, when you look at the alternative... You know, most people are saying, I choose to be bitter. No one's going to put that on a nicely kind of calligraphied thing and put it over their bed, right? No one's going to do that. But how many of us live like that? I choose to be bitter. I choose to not let this go because I am right in this. And I choose to let this gnaw at me and simmer so that my soul is at a state of inner turmoil and anxiety. Now, I know that there are people that struggle with issues of anxiety and depression, that, that have a, a clinical diagnosis where this is a much more complicated issue. But I'm saying for the majority of us, where we just want to kind of forget that thing and say, no, choose joy doesn't work. No, if we choose joy, the other thing we need to do is say, dear Jesus, help me. I want to choose joy. Help me to choose joy. 
We know that we're in a state of relational health when there is an absence of anxiety. And I, like I've said, I want to be sensitive to those that are battling with clinically diagnosed conditions. And I don't want any sense of guilt or shame to be heaped on you. I'm just reading out the text. The absence of anxiety says, be anxious for nothing. But this is the key. He tells us how. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, will garrison, will defend, will protect your mind and heart through Christ Jesus. This is not the same context where, where he's talking about anxiety. It's not necessarily the same context where, where Jesus is saying, do not worry about the things that you will eat. Do not worry about how God will provide for you. Do not worry about the things that the Gentiles run after. This is, this is anxiety in the context of interpersonal relationships and conflict within the Philippian church. And so Paul is saying, in, in anxiety that is rooted in those kinds of things, bring those to God in prayer with supplication and thanksgiving. Prayer is just a broader kind of umbrella. Supplication is, is a fancy word for saying, and ask God. That's what supplication means. It's very, very difficult to rejoice in the Lord and be mad at someone. You should try it. I mean, very, very sick people are like that. Literally, where there's a split. But for us, it is very difficult to be in a state of rejoicing in the Lord and to be anxious and to be angry. That's why there's a sense in which all of this works together. And that Paul is saying, rejoice, be anxious for nothing. And everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God guards our hearts. And as my accent becomes a little difficult here. But, it, but God guards your hearts. Did you get that? It's Nick Salter sign language. You know. This is an amazing picture. And I, I want you to just think about this. In Philippi, there was a Roman garrison that surrounded the city. So when Paul says that the, that the God of peace will guard, protect, defend your mind and heart, they have a picture of what this looks like. There is a garrison of Roman soldiers protecting Philippi as a colony. This is a very real and visual picture to the Philippian church. This is what the peace of God looks like. It looks like a wall with soldiers standing outside defending your mind and heart. Now, this is the other key about God's peace guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. What soldiers do when they defend a city is they don't just stop things from coming in. They also stop things from leaving, right? That's, that's the point. And so what happens is the peace of God enables us to reject the things that are going to come against us that will provide anxiety or shame or pain or, or the things that bring us some kind of emotional entanglement. But it also the peace of God enables us to keep that deposit of the Spirit of God within us so that it doesn't just leak out when we're experiencing these things. The peace of God will watch what you let into your heart as well as what comes out of your heart. That is key. For, for me, that's where I ask for the peace of God to guard my mind and heart. 
Most of the time, I'm praying, saying, God, forgive me for what I said or did. But a lot of time, I'm saying, God, help me not to do something that is going to offend, hurt, or harm someone. Help me, in the context of this, not to let something out that is going to be of damage to someone else. I love this text because it says your mind and heart. It means that the peace of God is active in your thoughts and in your feelings. It's not just one or the other. And some of us are more logical. And I'm like, great, okay, boom, 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 done. Okay, that makes sense. Some of us want to feel this connection like it's okay, everything will be all right. How? I don't know, but I just know that everything will be all right. I hope you have a friend like that. You just believe them. They have no facts. They have no plan. They have no reason for everything to be okay. But they sit with you and they say, it's going to be okay. And for whatever reason, the presence of God is so thick with him that you're like, I believe you. I believe that it's going to be. It's a, I feel the peace of God engages with my feelings. I feel things are going to be okay. The peace of God engages with my mind. I know things are going to be okay. Again, on the surface, this sounds so trite and uninformed and unloving. This is, don't be anxious. But I, I want to challenge you with this. Before you say, this doesn't work, try it. Before you get into this ball of anxiety about some kind of relationship or some kind of context in which you find yourself in, then come before God with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And say, God, I'm doing what you asked me to do. And your promise is that the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Try it. Talk to Jesus before you embark on the peer parade of gossip that we like to call advice. How many people have you spoken to about your interpersonal conflict and relationship before talking to Jesus? How many people have you allowed to come to you and spew about interpersonal conflicts? And, and the one question that is not an unloving question, the one question that we can say is, have you gone to Jesus in prayer about this? Have you asked him about your own heart? Have you done that? That is the most loving thing we can do with one another. It is the most precious thing we can do with one another. God's peace is not logical. It's, it's not. It's the peace that passes understanding. It means that the source of your peace is not a conclusion to this problem or a resolution or an, uh, a clearly defined set of steps that will make you come out of the situation. And Paul tells us it, it, is, it surpasses understanding. It's beyond that. Why? Because it is a faithful trust in the character of God. A.W. Tozer says that when we're in difficult situations, whenever my wife is in a difficult situation, not just with me, there are other difficult situations she faces, okay? Whenever she's in a difficult situation, she goes back to, to a number of books. One of them is Tozer's book, and the other one is Pink. Not the artist Pink, but A.W. Pink. Oh, okay. Um, and he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you're struggling, and most of us try to say, oh, okay, what's, what's happening in here? The, the most important thing that we can do is like, what is God like? What is his nature like? What is his 
character like? What does God reveal about himself in all of this? Because he tells us that God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. So I like hear this, and I'm like, well, God, that's great. I mean, you're never fretting, and you're always relaxed, and you don't have nerves, and how can you understand what I'm going through? Right? Because part of the nature and character of God is that he doesn't fret, and he doesn't fear, and he's not insecure. So I'm like, well, thanks very much. It's like, it's awesome to have a God that doesn't struggle with any of these things, telling me it'll be okay. You know what? We do have a God with, that struggled with every one of these things. And as we end this, I'll show you how. The purity of our thoughts. How do I know I'm in a state of relational health? I have the ability to rejoice and absorb. There is an absence of anxiety when it comes to my interpersonal relationships. And there is a purity of my thoughts. Finally, brethren. Now, this is not finally, like Matt's finally was. Poor Matt got up here last week. Because he said finally, and the band took him at his word. So don't come up here. Paul says finally throughout all his letters, and he never means it, so I can say it and not mean it, okay? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever things are just, whatever are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any virtue, if anything is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things that you have learned, received, heard, and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will you. There is, will be with you. There is a connection between what we choose to spend our mental energy on and the fact that the God of peace will be with us. Meditate on these things. Now, what do these words even mean? I remember coaching um, softball, and one of the girls would you know, hit a, a triple, and I would say, lovely shot. And the parents would look at me like, what does that even mean? You know, here's this guy who doesn't even know anything about softball coaching. What, what does this mean? Well, let me say this. Can you imagine having a conflict with someone and asking yourself this question? God, help me to see what is true about her, what is noble about her, what is just about her, what is pure, what is lovely, what is of good report, what is virtuous, what is praiseworthy about Yodia. Help me to see that. I, I want to meditate on these things. Man, let me tell you, that changes, that changes your prayer all of a sudden. Because all of a sudden your prayer was like, oh God, please help me to deal with Karen. And then God says, meditate on these things. Man, she is so lovely. She is so self-giving. She is so patient. She is so forgiving. What was I mad with her about? Okay, it doesn't work that simply. But <laughs> ask the dog. It doesn't work that simply, okay? This is what we do. We spend time thinking about what is a lie, what is crass, what is dirty, what is ugly, what is bad news, what is malicious, and things that should be hidden. This is an area that I still need to grow in in the context of, of kind of harnessing my mind. Like almost 10 years ago, God spoke to me out of Song of Solomon when it came to my relationship with Karen. And there's a, there's a verse in Song of Solomon that says, 
You are so beautiful to me, my love. There is no flaw in you. And I'm like, there's a flaw in everyone. And he said, no, you don't understand. You need to think of her like this. You need to get down on your knees and you need to be able to say, there is no flaw in you. It will change the way you husband her. And there are times where I've done that better. There are times where I've done that worse. Ask the dog. <laughs> but let me say this. When you can think of the things that are true and noble and lovely and praiseworthy, when you can think of those things about someone in your context or even outside of your context, now that's the problem that we have with, with our current kind of political situation. No one is thinking that anyone has any of these desires in their heart on either side. Slow down and actually say, is there something pure and lovely and praiseworthy about what this person is trying to communicate? I challenge you to do that with a person that you have a disagreement with. In fact, right now, just close your eyes and think about that person. And say, Spirit of God, what is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous or praiseworthy about this person? Our, our unity is not facilitated by the way in which we align ourselves to each other. So even these musical instruments, they aren't tuned to each other. They're tuned to a tuner. Is that the better way to say this? I don't even know how this works. Okay, but, but what happens is... <laughs> I mean, is this a joke? Oh, there we go. Right. Um, this is a tuner that I have just broken. And, um, and the way in which we maintain unity is to do exactly what the song that we sung earlier was, was come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. What we do is we run around, so you hear a message like this and you're like, oh my goodness, I have annoyed so many people. I need to go and like ask for forgiveness, make those relationships right. And I'm saying if God has convicted you by the Holy Spirit to do something about relationships that are scratchy, do it. But this is by far more effective. If we tune ourselves to Christ, all of us, we are automatically tuned to each other. That is what Paul has told the Philippians right from the beginning. If you have this mind, if you behave in the way that Jesus did, if you are humble in the way that Jesus did, if you don't demand your rights, then all of you will be a community that shines the light of God forward. So instead of saying, okay, like, what do I need to be in right relationship with Karen? What do I need to be in right relationship with Neil? What do I need to be in right relationship? No. What do I need to be in right relationship with my Savior so that the overflowing grace comes to Karen and to Neil and to Jacqueline? And they're thinking the same thing. Now, all of a sudden, we have less interpersonal conflict because our focus is on being like Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, as I was preparing this message, I was having this argument with God. 
That happened to me in the shower, which is where I do most of my arguments with God. And, and so I'm saying to him, this makes no sense. You're asking me to tell people to do something that is impossible. This seems impossible. Who wants to be anxious? Duh. You know, if I had a choice, I'd be like, yeah, I think I want to choose anxiety today. You know, no. But God, how? How can you understand me? How can you help me? How can you forgive me if you've never been afraid, never been insecure, never been fearful, never cared what anyone thinks about you? And he's like, really? I haven't? Because when I came in the form of Jesus, there were people that looked at me and demanded liberty from their oppression. There were Pharisees that wanted to kill me. There were people that picked up stones and wanted to throw them at me. I had Matthew, the sellout, the tax collector on this side, and I had Simon, the zealot, the person that wanted to gain, uh, to liberate people through force on the other side. Imagine how that was. I had James and John, the mama's boys, who kept asking me if they could sit on my left and my right-hand side. I had Peter, who denied me, and I had Judas, who betrayed me. Above all that, at the moment of my greatest pain, I was alone, abandoned, abused, misunderstood, and brutalized. So I think I know if you're feeling anxious, or betrayed, or misunderstood. I think I know that. But the good news is, on the third day, sin, Satan, and death were vanquished. On the third day, I rose again and presented myself to the disciples. Forty days after that, I ascended and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. What am I doing? I am praying for you. I'm making intercession for you. And not only that, I said to you, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the Holy Spirit and he will come and he will take what is mine and give to you. He will flood you with the very life that gave me life on that third day. I have come to give you ultimate peace. So yes, Nick, I think I know what you're going through. I was embarrassed and overjoyed at the same time. It changed the way I thought about everything because it changed this idea of a God that kind of sits out there that I cannot have any idea of and has no idea of me to the reality that he has experienced so much more than I will ever experience and wants to give me that help. We can have this ultimate peace because Jesus has become our ultimate peace. The war in our souls is over. He's overcome sin, Satan, and death. We have nothing to fear because we don't even need to fear death. We do not fear a meaningless existence because Jesus has incorporated us into his plan for the restoration of all things. We do not fear loneliness because God is with us and we're part of a family. We do not have to feel a sense of discomfort because we know that our home is not here and another home awaits us. That's why when I go camping, I don't expect to be comfortable. I know that's not my home. I know I'm going to go home and get a shower. I know I'm going to go home and sleep in a nice bed. I'm not expecting that to be my home. And that's why if we're, if we're expecting this world to be our home, we will be riddled with all of these things. Nothing is more true, more noble, more just more lovely, of good report, more virtuous, and more praiseworthy than what Jesus did for us.
Nothing is more true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous and praiseworthy of what the Spirit is currently doing in us. And nothing is more true, noble, just, pure, and lovely than a community that helps us to do this and challenges us to live in this way. Band, won't you come up? I want us to do what Paul has encouraged the Philippians to do. And I want us to meditate on some truths. And I literally am going to read the Word of God. I'm just going to read and pause, read and pause, read and pause, and then we're going to respond in worship. Just posture yourself in a meditative kind of stance, whatever that is for you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Spirit of God, I just ask you to come and do what no words can do. I ask you as people open themselves in a posture of receptivity that we would be freshly reminded of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that will guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. I want to pray, Father God, that we would recognize that this is not a work of the flesh. This is simply us asking, Spirit of God, help us to be more aware of this work. Help us to be more responsive. Help us to know you are with us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope and joy